Hey, what's going on, everyone? Welcome to another episode of About Abroad, where it's my job to introduce you to people who have built amazing lives for themselves in various foreign corners of the globe. We're talking with expats and thought leaders about moving abroad, remote work, visas, and all the fun and practical knowledge that you need to know to follow in their footsteps. If you've ever dreamed of making a life for yourself overseas, maybe working remotely or embracing long-term travel, retiring or studying abroad, or even just taking a peek inside life beyond your borders, you've landed in the right place. This episode is brought to you by my friends over at Make My Move. Many of you are already aware that there are places around the world that want to attract remote workers to come and live there. But did you know that some of them will actually pay you to do so? Yeah, that's right. And aside from the cash incentives these towns might offer you, there are other incredible benefits ranging from free babysitting to concert tickets and even free healthcare. These places also make a terrific home base for digital nomads with super fast internet, friendly neighbors, and affordability and close proximity to major airports. In fact, the remote workers who relocate typically save around $20,000 per year by moving to these new communities. But perhaps most importantly, the locals in those communities are truly excited to welcome new movers in and get them plugged into the local network. The problem is, where do you start? But luckily, Make My Move is your one-stop shop for all things related to these towns. Since 2021, they've helped more than 1,000 remote workers and their families relocate, and through their platform, you can explore all the places that are offering incentives to come and live there, get personalized help to find the place that's right for you, connect with the locals, super important, and access support services to actually make the move a reality. Take advantage of all the benefits that come with your location independence by checking out makemymove.com via the link in the show notes. My guest today is my friend Lily Bruins, who is back for her second round here on About Abroad, and she brings a wealth of knowledge on all things digital nomad visas. She's been diving into a white paper for the last several months and sharing little tidbits of it around the internet as she goes. So it's not quite done yet, but it will be published very soon, and there's already a live database that she can share as well with lots of more detailed information. But today we just dive into some of the generalities of digital nomad visas what she's learning, some of her favorites and the ones that are the most unique in approaching this in the quote-unquote right way, and some of the subjects that we think these nomad visas need to address if they're to become really attractive for remote workers and nomads alike. So whether you are planning on becoming a nomad or just moving abroad for a period of time, there's probably a lot of information in here that's useful, food for thought, and I think you will enjoy it as well. So please help me in welcoming Lily to About Abroad. Lily, welcome back to About Abroad. Great to see you again. How's life treating you? Life is good. Life is good. A little, a little bit different than the last time we uh, caught up. <laughs> <laughs> You've been through some changes, huh? Yeah. So I think uh, I, I don't remember how many months pregnant I was last time we we jumped on your show, and now I have a thirteen month old. So I think that means it was about fourteen has months been ago. Intense. Yeah. <laughs> I can imagine. Uh, where are you today? So I'm back in Chiang Mai, Thailand. Okay. Back, quote unquote, home, right? Yes, yes, yes. Nice. Home, How's it feel to south. be back? It's great. I love Chiang Mai. Although I will say I've been trying to plan an escape because unfortunately this time of year, the, the air quality is pretty terrible. We had a bit of rain recently, so there's some relief, but I worry, you know, I don't feel good. I worry about the tiny lungs that I'm responsible for. 
but then uh, traveling, you know, even when both parents work remotely, just traveling with like a kid is a whole nother set of logistics <laughs> to organize for. So we've been talking about uh, popping over to Vietnam, but just haven't quite gotten around to booking that trip yet. Oh man. Is that, is the air quality thing? I believe we talked about this actually. Mm. Like, does it have to do with these like fires that happen every yeah. once a year or something? Is it in China or? Uh, there's some level of like agricultural burning, but there's also a lot of forest fires and people okay. will set fires on purpose because it makes it easier to collect uh, mushrooms and these are like very profitable for people to harvest. Uh, but I think it's also like atmospheric and seasonal and it's like a Southeast Asia thing. Like it's a problem if you look at the maps because like there are like satellites watching from space, like identifying where the fires are and you can see there's this, this like whole band <laughs> that like goes from like the Gulf of Thailand up to China where it's just like pfft, red. Wow. Oh, that's wild. Yeah. You, I would consider like if I was coming to Southeast Asia, I'd be like, is it rainy season or not? I would not think mm -hmm. or a uh, smoky season. Yeah. I don't remember this from when I was a kid, you know, like, but yeah, it's, so, it's like, has it gotten that much worse or is it that we're just more sensitive? We feel like, Hey, I have a right to freaking clean air. I'm going to like <laughs> <laughs> demand this. Um, yeah. Seems like a basic human need, uh, clean mm -hmm. air, but yeah, I mean, I, I, a lot of us are living with, without that and without even considering it. I remember, um, actually like it's weird. It's a weird thing when you grow up in the U S you like the, in a lot of countries that are like really, really big, you just grow up in your little bubble and you don't know any different. And like, like, so for me, for example, like I grew up in the Southeast U S and it was like, um, you know, summer just meant hot and humid like humidity is just like that. Those two things are synonymous for me. Uh, and I remember the first time I went out West, I did like a road trip out to the West side of the, the country. And I was like up in the Pacific Northwest and it was like not humid. And I was like, Oh, it can be hot, but not humid <laughs> or like, um, or then like going over to Montana, coming back to like smoke. I remember they were like, Oh yeah, this is, this is smoky season. And I was like, what do you mean? They're like, we have forest fires all summer. And, uh, yeah. it's just, you know, clouds of smoke. And I was like, I didn't know these things existed. Like I didn't, I didn't know. It's just, that's your normal. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's, yeah. It's, uh, Air quality is a problem in a lot of different places around the world. So I realized cause like my husband's from, uh, from British Columbia, from like Vancouver and it's rated as like a wonderful place to live besides being like so expensive. Uh, but they also apparently like it nearby have a seasonal haze issue because again, it's like, like forest fires that, that can occur and yeah, nowhere, nowhere's perfect. Right. Yeah. <laughs> you have problems. <laughs> they everywhere, always got their true. issues. <laughs> As, uh, is so true. Um, well, I'm, I'm stoked to have you back on the show and, uh, we're going to be talking about one of my favorite subjects, um, which is, you know, related to something that you've been very deep into, uh, as of recently, I've been loving following your work and the posts you've been doing all about digital nomad visas. And obviously, this is a, a subject that um, that people listening to this show are, you know, naturally have an interest in. And uh, and it's like something that really didn't even exist, or at least the name digital nomad visas yeah. didn't even exist like a couple just a couple years ago. And just now a there's dream. tons of them. It was just a dream. Yeah. <laughs> I, and, and here we are today. And uh, you're writing this this incredible white paper on all the digital nomad visa options. So I would love to just kind of kick it off with like maybe give a, a, a quick overview of um, for those that don't know you yet, like a little bit about your background and then, you know, transition into what you're working on with this. And then we'll we'll go deeper as the uh, conversation unfolds. 
Yeah. So in brief, uh, professionally, I, I work in the startup space, wear a lot of different hats, uh, mostly marketing, strategy, content. Um, and I freelance since I moved back to Chiang Mai in like 2000. Uh, 17 that was like Chiang Mai is my hometown and and I and I left uh, at one point because I was like ah oh, this town's too small for me I got big dreams and then, like <laughs> I moved to London I lived in New York and then I was like I'm really sad like I work all the time I like can't afford therapy or my apartment I'm miserable what am I doing um, so following that, yeah, so I decided to, to leave the big city and because I was able to work remotely, I decided to relocate back to Thailand, um, and just really shifted gears and invested in the community here. And I had been running events for digital nomads and sort of getting connected to that community. And I realized that unlike all, all my fellow remote workers in Thailand, they didn't all have Thai passports like I did. They were having some trouble sticking around this place. And that's when like 2019 is when this whole issue came on my radar with the Chiang Mai Entrepreneurship Association uh, and uh, the Faculty of Economics at Chiang Mai University, we put out a study uh, to try to provide some data for the government because people were asking for a nomad visa and their kind of public servants were like, okay, like digital nomads, that's kind of a thing, but we don't get it. Who are digital nomads? Why should we care enough to rewrite our visa policy for them? You know, they needed information. Um, and things sort of, well, let's just say it just like went from there and, you know, uh, it's not so much progress in terms of making the visa happen in Thailand, but I've just really been stuck in this issue. It just really feels like there's an opportunity here and I'm still just like flabbergasted that Thailand hasn't jumped on that uh, bandwagon, but, but many other countries around the world have. So do you, that's me. Do you feel like, uh, like, so, so Thailand has been this, uh, nomad mecca for a long time like Ugh. Chiang Mai in particular right and so I would understand if someone said like why do we need like we already have this why do we exactly. need a new like, visa we don't need to attract nomads they already just right. show up like why would we make effort for them yeah what do um, you say to that to that like challenge I guess and I mean maybe we'll get to this later I don't know if it's yeah. the right time to ask the question I'm just genuinely curious I mean, it's really interesting when you see what happened with the pandemic, right? Because then all that's like, that's what spurred a lot of countries to introduce um, their, their remote work visas. And, you know, all of a sudden Thailand's like, uh, you know, oh, maybe we'll just let people indefinitely extend their visas and stick around because our economy is completely battered. And like, it's people like uh, remote workers who are keeping destinations like Alpangan afloat, you know, otherwise the tourism infrastructure would be completely useless because no one's coming in and out. Um, but then it's kind of funny how the borders reopened and they're just like, eh, eh. <laughs> <laughs> so there's some level of like, perhaps like risk mitigation, you know, hopefully something is like, devastating as a pandemic doesn't happen again but you kind of have these stress tests that can occur right and you sort of realize like okay if all of your tourism strategy is geared towards like short-term accommodation is that what you want there are these problems of like over tourism that people have um and tourists come with their own set of problems i'm not saying digital nomads like don't but like do you really want people who are just 
jumping in, jumping out, and they're only going to use infrastructure that is created specifically for tourists. And like, it's great that those experiences exist in your location, but um, is that necessarily generating uh, benefit for your local populace? Like, you know, outside of the obvious like jobs and stuff, but yeah, I think there's a way of like diversifying what you invest in because if you are investing in like strong telecom, if you have co-working spaces, uh, if you are increasing like the amount of like housing that's available, that's stuff that can be good for digital nomads and good for your local residents as, as well, mm-hmm. right? Whereas I think pure tourism infrastructure, I think it's a little bit harder to, to make that argument. So I think that's one way of looking at it. But I think long-term, the real big thing is when it comes to uh, innovation and you know, I hesitate to even bring this up because I'm definitely not qualified to speak on this, but like taxes. I remember having a conversation when I was on uh, John Lee's webinar a while ago. We sort of had this moment where it was like, uh, you know, this kind of big holy shit moment of just like, okay, beyond digital nomad visas, if people really start moving around, where do they pay income tax? And that's so central to the way that countries like plan their economies that if all of a sudden like your tax base can just up and move, what do you do? You know, so, so in the short term, it's like, okay, you know, boost your tourism, um, you know, invest in quality of life uh, things that are going to be good for, for local residents as well, attract talent, have entrepreneurship. But like in the long run, I think you countries have to be paying attention to this because it's, it's not even just digital nomads specifically, but remote work is really just going to reshape like the way people move, the way that people live, the way people plan their lives, how they invest, you know, that's going to have like some big second and third order effects. So I really think this like remote work visas are just the tip of the iceberg and countries I, I should totally be paying agree. attention. Yeah, I 100% agree with you. And it's funny you bring up the like the tourism dollars or, or revenue versus, mm-hmm. um, you know, like nomad or more midterm to long term uh, visitors revenue. And I, I had, uh, Yan de Jong on the show who helped yeah. form, uh, the digital nomad visa in Croatia. And he was, and he was kind of saying like that revenue from tourism is actually like very, very small on a per capita basis. He was, mm-hmm. and he was using Dubrovnik as a, as an example, like, you know, cruise ships show up there every year with millions of people who get off the cruise ship yeah. Walk through the city, maybe buy a four euro ice cream and get right. back on the boat, you know? And he was like, there's no revenue. He's like, there's, no, there's not that much, you know, even if they it sit down and have lunch or something. Yeah, it takes a massive yeah. toll in the city. And he's like, but, but if you flip that around and you look at, let's say a digital nomad that's there for, for one month, like not only are they going to, you know, go out and have lunch and, uh, you know, and yeah. buy that ice cream too, probably, but they're also going to go get their hair cut or get their mm-hmm. laptop fixed at a local store or have to, you know, rent a co-working space, um, obviously rent an apartment. Um, you know, so all these things like they, there's the, the second and third order effects are like really, really interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. People are just used to doing what they have done. Right. And it's like, you don't have to explain to someone like why you would have a tourist visa for your country, why you have like business visas. Um, and you know, sometimes I'm surprised that like people can't see that like just having a hybrid of the two brings both benefits, right? Yeah. Like why does your country have business visa so that business people can come spend short amounts of time in your country, transacting your economy and creating potential opportunities like digital nomads 
are that, but they're also here for like the leisure lifestyle portion. Right. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So so let's give people a little bit of extra context here about this yeah. overview of the white paper. Like what what yes. is the the project? How would you, how do you describe it in sort of like the elevator pitch <laughs> style? <laughs> so the project is basically bringing together everything that I've learned over the last couple of years. Um about how to create a digital nomad visa from my own journey, from following the journeys of others like Yan De Jong that you just mentioned in Croatia, like my friend Alana in Colombia, um, speaking to those folks, um, hearing a little bit from the policy people themselves who I've had the chance to connect to. I, I've like done lots of like panels on this topic for many virtual, virtual conferences and the like uh, to try to, yeah, just understand that perspective as well. And what I see a need for is like an introductory resource. I've taken a lot of phone calls from folks who are interested, but like they just need like Digital Nomads 101, you know, mm -hmm. and before they can even jump to the policy side. So um, I've been doing a, a survey and trying to find other data sources as well to really capture a good like know a snapshot of who digital nomads are and that's difficult because it's not just like there's kind of like the og nomad like freelancer like half a step above a backpacker vibe of yesteryear but but you know the movement itself has changed as well and like who needs visas so it's trying to pin down those um those personas and and the pain points uh, and make mm. that really clear and then uh yeah try to share some data about like uh, and information about why countries would try to attract this target population, whether that's like digital nomads who are traveling a lot or remote workers uh, who are kind of you know, larger umbrella, different movement styles, but um, might be more attractive from a, like a long-term play. Um, let's look at some like case studies of how countries have done this, who have launched and then, you know, have this big database um, that I've been maintaining um for, for several years since these nomad visas started coming out. And, uh, and a lot of them are kind of crap. Like, <laughs> Let's there's be honest. So much, yeah, there's a lot of excitement around this. Um, and there's a lot of hype. And I've really seen it now how, how fun it is for people to like sprinkle digital nomad onto their, their news article, their press release, because it gets hits, it gets eyeballs. But at the end of the day, the solution that they're providing is not actually for like, quote, unquote, digital nomads, right? They might be for certain types of remote workers. But folks who have been saying the new like 10 year LTR visa for Thailand is a digital nomad visa. I'm just like, are you bonkers? It's for <laughs> 10 years. You have to There's have nothing like, nomadic about you 10 have years. To be employed. <laughs> yeah, you have to be employed by like, uh, like a public company. Otherwise, you have to prove all these other documents, like, just because there's a criteria in there that accommodates uh, like remote workers doesn't make it a digital nomad visa, you know? So I'm just trying to make some distinctions there. Like, Hey, beyond the hype, because people will say there's like 40 plus digital nomad visas out there. And maybe there's 40 plus, uh, remote work visas out there. If we can just be a little bit more nuanced with our language. But like, if we're talking about digital nomads who are different from remote workers in my eye, because their lifestyle is defined by travel. You know, it's not just location independent folks who have the ability to move around. It's folks who really primarily orient their identity and their lifestyle and how they plan, uh, you know, around that travel. Like for digital nomads, are there actually any visas or any good?
So yeah, covering that whole span. It's like Digital wow. Nomads 101. If you're a policymaker, this is what you need to know. Let's look at what other folks have been doing and like what's good, what's not working, and let's hear straight from you know, the mouth of nomads themselves what their pain points are and what we should be trying to address. Man, it sounds like a lot <laughs> to, a to dive into. <laughs> I don't know why I'm doing this anymore. <laughs> it was fun at first, and now I'm just tired. <laughs> <laughs> You're not wrong. <laughs> oh, man, I could imagine. I mean, uh, and it's a funny thing you bring up about, like, like I, I read one of these articles recently that was like 52 countries with digital nomad mm-hmm. visas. And very quickly, as you read through them, you're like, well, that's not a digital nomad visa. And, and yeah, I was trying to yeah. decide is it useful? Like I was questioning myself before our conversation. So it's cool. You brought it up. Mm-hmm. Like I was like, I, at first I was kind of annoyed to be honest. I was like, well, these aren't digital nomad visas. One of the ones was one that I was on that I've been on for four years. And I was like, this is not a digital nomad visa. This is yeah, built for yeah, like yeah. retirees, you know, like it just so happens that it applies to my situation. Um, but like uh, that, that one's in Spain, the non-lucrative visa was, and, and they've, Spain has actually come out with, a digital nomad visa mm-hmm. now so they have these two two visas which are in parallel which in a lot of ways serve like the same purpose like like the infrastructure is the same yeah. the timeline the the stuff you need to submit um the difference the main differences is like are for example like one is built for retirees so you have a fixed income coming in from like mm-hmm. a pension or your retirement accounts or whatever and you're not actively earning money um, so therefore, they're not like necessarily looking to tax you. Whereas yeah. the digital nomad visa, Spain is like, no, 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 we want you're you're earning money. We want you to pay into the tax system while you're here. Okay. Um, so anyway, there's like this. Uh, there are some nuanced differences that are that are actually impactful. But I found myself questioning, like as I was reading that article at first, I was like this is kind of annoying because a lot of these aren't digital <laughs> nomad visas and like yeah. they just shouldn't be in this article. And then I found myself wondering, well, yeah, but the person who's reading this is just looking for, hey, I have location independence. I want to move somewhere. All these are valid options, right? So, um, yeah, I don't know. Like, I, like, I, I see why you want to uh, separate the two, like remote worker yeah. and digital nomad. And then I also find myself wondering, like, well... Are, like they're different, but I, I get, I get that they're different. I don't know. I'm not even sure there's yeah. a question in here. I'm just, it's a curious, it's a, it's an interesting topic. Yeah, I definitely, for, for the purpose of the paper and in the language I'm going to be using, I'm going to try to uh, be clear about that distinction when we talk about visas for remote workers versus visas for digital nomads. But it's like, God, like, it's unstoppable. You're not going to like convince every single journalist and blogger out there to, to buy into that distinction, you know, but uh, at least I'm hoping that with this, uh, with this white paper, some folks sort of could see a little bit of nuance in there. Cause I yeah. do think language is important, but you're not going <laughs> to, you know, I'm not going to become the language police. Like people are going <laughs> to call them what they want to call them. That would be a fun job. Uh, language police too. <laughs> so, all right, well let's, let's, uh, I would love to look at some generalities before we get into some specific yeah. visas. Hey, um, yeah. Can I get specific about a visa? Cause it's just because you yeah. mentioned Spain, right? Yeah. Yeah. And please. So there's a, so you're saying it's kind of like a, almost like a rebrand in a way of just like an existing, like a visa channel that they already have and they're targeting this towards nomads, but the difference is that they want to collect taxes. So are they doing anything differently about their, like, you no, know, they're like, 
revenue collection process to make it easier for digital nomads? Or are they just going to be like, no, no, you can come in on the visa, but then you have to like go through the, our exact same ridiculously bureaucratic tax process? To, to be honest, I don't really know. Fortunately, I don't have to deal with it. I've just moved to permanent <laughs> residency recently. So I'm mm. happy that I, uh, that I don't have to deal with that. But um, I think the idea is that they put you through the same process. And, and I yeah. think they're creating a ton of friction by, mm-hmm. by doing that personally. Like, I mean, I, again, I don't have to deal with it personally, so I don't have my own uh, perspective. But that's my assumption is that this is like problematic, especially when you're looking at other countries where they're not forcing you to go through the tax system. I think it has less to do with the money and more about the friction. Like, yeah, we're creating yeah. People this don't extra like paying step. Taxes, yeah, we don't mind they paying like, taxes. But they do mind bureaucracy and paperwork and taking time out of their lives to go sit in some office where it's like a second language for them and yeah. like they're confused about what's going on and it's just hassle, right? Because a lot of people are just like, well, why am I dealing with this? I'll just leave. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And I'll go to one of these other countries that doesn't require me to do that. It's like yeah. when in like software, you know, it's like, do you, ha- do you make me enter the credit card information beforehand before the free trial or not? You know, yeah. like, just get me in the door and then I'll spend my money later. Uh, don't, don't put all this friction yeah. in place. So, uh, in that's way, my it's like take. ultimate first world problems. Yeah. It is <laughs> no, like, totally. I, it, you know, you do have to call out like digital nomads for being part of like a, it's a very privileged movement. It's like you 100%. come from a country that has a strong like knowledge economy. So you have these skills and you have a passport privilege, which allows you to move around pretty freely. Right. But at the end of the day, it's still like, okay, like it's a, your cust your customer, your end user is like privileged or not, like, doesn't matter. You're not going to like be able to shame them into going through extra bureaucracy if they don't have to, right? Are you going to solve the problem or not? Because like, I don't know, I'm thinking about it like a marketer. Absolutely. Yeah. 100%. And, and I, I can't stand it when people don't recognize that, that privilege. Um, I, I was talking with a guy who was like frustrated with his, um, accountant in mm-hmm. Portugal because he, this guy earned, you know, several hundred thousand dollars a year. And he was trying to mm-hmm. work with, he was a foreigner living there, trying to work through like, you know, minimizing his tax bill in yeah. in Portugal. And I'm like, and his accountant wasn't really working with him to the degree that he would like. And I'm like, man, you're earning like four times more than the local accountant that you're working with. Yeah. And you're trying to like show you're trying to get him to help you lower your like you're you're living a great life, man. You're you're fine. <laughs> um, yeah. This is not something to be frustrated about. So recognize the privilege um, that and, and, you know, let's let's move past this. For sure. Yeah, it's yeah. really interesting to sort of see this clash of world expectations, like cultures, accounting practices, because like in the US, it's just so normal, right? To just be like, how do I pay as little taxes as possible? Like, yeah. that's, <laughs> since I was 18, I started filing with TurboTax. That's basically like been my MO, right? Uh, and like now as an adult, you know, trying to think bigger picture, I'm also just like, oh, right, but like, you know, from like a moral and like, you know, social contract standpoint, I like the idea of taxes. Like it's good. It's good for countries to invest. Right. Uh, but, but, there's a, <laughs> but there's a real disconnect, like where the politics come in and like how you actually, yeah, sort of fit into the system. It's just so indirect that you just sort of feel like, where am I in all of this? Like I kind of resent that I'm just kind of just like a pawn in all of this shuffling and, 
Yeah, there's just yeah. something very deeply unsatisfying about the user experience of being, you know, a, a taxing citizen sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I think many of us can agree with that. We'll be right back to the show after a quick break for a note from our sponsor. This episode is brought to you by my good friends over at Greenback Tax, the very best in U.S. expat tax services and the company that I've trusted to handle my tax situation since I moved abroad in 2015. Greenback is 100% focused on helping U.S. expats with their taxes, and to date, they filed almost 50,000 returns for nearly 15,000 happy customers like me living in more than 200 different countries around the world. After seven years working together, I can say with confidence that they make one of the most painful parts of life abroad an absolute breeze with their automated systems that store all of your information for you to make tax filing easy year after year and the friendly advisors who you actually have a working relationship with. There are no robots over at Greenback. Best of all, everyone is a CPA or enrolled agent with a specialty in U.S. expat taxes, which means they know exactly how to help you take advantage of some incredible tax breaks because you're living abroad, not in spite of it. As of January 23rd, tax season has officially arrived, so it's time to get started. Learn more about Greenback tax today by visiting Greenback taxservices.com via the link in the show notes. If you've made it this far into the episode and you're still enjoying yourself, then I would love to ask a quick favor. Open up the app that you're using to listen to this podcast and leave a quick review. You can do this in Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and really just about any platform that allows podcast listening now. If you can't find that in the interface of the app, then scroll down in the show notes and find ratethispodcast.com slash aboutabroad, and you should be able to leave it from there. Thanks so much, guys. We really appreciate it and hope you enjoy the rest of the show this whole thing about digital nomads and moving countries and where you spend a majority or a part of your time, like adds so much complexity to that. And, okay. um, until we have, you know, just a flat global minimum tax, there's, this is something we got to, uh, deal with, but, but we also both know like this all goes way beyond just taxes. Like it's, it, it, yeah. it, this gets a lot of the limelight, I think, but, mm-hmm. um, you know, it goes beyond just like, where can you stay and how much tax do you pay? <laughs> there's yeah. there's a lot in between. And um, so what I would love to ask you is like, you know, you've done all this research, you've analyzed, I'll let you fill in the blank, the, the mm-hmm. rough number of visa options and countries and stuff. But, um, you know, looking at all of that, like what general themes have emerged, you know, positive or negative, um, you know, from the from the government side and the bureaucratic side to the user experience side, the nomad side, like what are you, what are some bullet points that, you know, pop to the surface in your mind that are, that are particularly interesting and, or like of note and worth discussing? Yeah. So, um, the, the database, like I was collecting like all sorts of different visas, like not just the ones that were like labeled as digital nomad visas, but also uh, ones like you know, non-lucrative visas, things like that, that I knew that remote workers and nomads were using. Uh, but I've refined from that list and I've cut down and I have 41 uh, visa programs that have a requirement to show proof of remote work. Right. So like that's what I'm qualifying as a remote work visa. And within those 41, I'm still working to pin down the scoring criteria. Um, And because I because I want to come up with like, you know, an ultimate like score, um, because I I don't think I'm going to be able to so tidily just say like, okay, this is like the binary, like, yes or no. Like, is it a digital nomad visa? Because I because, you know, none of them are perfect. 
Mm -hmm. I like had a little group of uh, folks who've been helping me with this project and we came up with a list of like red flags and green flags. So uh, a red flag is if there's any kind of like minimum stay, you know, because Mm -hmm. it completely defeats the purpose of like digital nomadism. If you have to be stressed about like leaving for more than six weeks or like if you're going to be gone for a total of six months, like are you calculating that? Like no one wants to Mm -hmm. worry about that right? Not a good digital nomad visa. But then like a green flag would be like, if you could apply for it completely online, which you would think for a remote work visa for a digital nomad visa would be a given, but it turns out, no, there's like paper forms. You have to get documents like translated, apostille, notarized. It's like, um, you have to show up at like the embassy in your home country, which is like yet another thing that actually reinforces this whole notion of like, passport privilege because sure if you're from like a country that's like well represented around the world then uh you know maybe you can find uh an embassy like near near nearby but you know if you're from like a smaller country like that's hard like (laughs) your options are really limited um so yeah good things bad things and so um sorry i kind of got lost in my home like complaints well i asked you like a super a super broad and complex question like what are the generalities that pop up from this we're like all right i can go in a million different directions but um you know but i i think you're you're answering the question like for sure it's Mm -hmm. these are these are some of the things that emerge when you when you start um diving into you know 40 50 different different visas like they're they're all imperfect um Mm -hmm. there are some things that make them more accessible some that make them less accessible Uh, i think you hit on two of the very important points um that was the case for me actually like i had to yeah i i can't stand when you have to like go back to your home country to apply for a visa like that that is such a a big thing some folks haven't like been home right for years and they weren't planning to yeah yeah, yeah, I think I think that's a that's a major red flag. And especially flag. if it's like a three to four month like application process that in, requires you to like go visit the embassy. Like, do you live near the embassy? Like, because mm-hmm. like in the U.S., that's a that's a big country. Like, <laughs> what you're just yeah. gonna like post up in like D.C. for for however long until you get your visa sorted? Like, that's expensive. Yeah, I have friends that were uh, that were from Colorado, and they're when they were doing the same visa process that I had to do, their embassy was in LA. So like mm-hmm. Denver to LA is not exactly like a short yeah. trip. And, and you have to imagine too, like some people say, Oh, whatever. So you fly to LA, no big deal. Um, yeah. But then you get there and then they say, Oh, you're missing this one piece of paper. Yes. Uh, you have to rebook your appointment for in a month. So now you have mm-hmm. to fly back again. Like, like this kind of thing happens um, in the, in Absolutely. the visa world. So removing and, location is a key factor. <laughs> yeah. And like birth certificates are a requirement for many of them, which I can get from the perspective of the government, but like you're already requiring a passport and in order to get a passport, you usually have to have proved a birth certificate and then some, right? So like, do you really need a birth certificate? Because who's flying around the world with their birth certificate? Like you keep those important documents like <laughs> in like a fire safe box somewhere at like your parents' house or something, right? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. Um, two two other factors that come to my mind are: um, is it renewable? Um, mm. Is I think that's a that's a factor. Like if I was looking into a digital nomad visa, 
Um, I think that's a, a flaw with the Croatian one, for example, is like they that they, they've checked a lot of the boxes, but it's currently just capped at 12 months and then you got to go. Um, so that's fine. I mean, that works for a lot of nomadic types. And and uh, and so maybe it's not a requirement. But for me, that would be a want, not a need. Yeah. And then the other is like the income threshold, um, mm-hmm. you know, like how much money I've seen some of these that, you know, you got to make 100 grand a year or something. And you're like, well, yeah, Cayman that Islands doesn't... is like one of the highest. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. So I don't know what your thoughts are on, on those two or any others, but mm-hmm. that, those come to mind as well. Yeah. I'll start with the income one. Like, you know, I do think it's like totally the prerogative of a country to decide like what uh, the minimum threshold is. That's like so reasonable, but Very. it has to be linked to reality. Right. Because if you're asking for a minimum like income requirement, that's like 20 times higher than your own like minimum wage, like, really like if it's like indexed against like like local cost of living or like let's say even like local tech wages right like even if it's like two or three x that's reasonable but like but it has to sort of it has to be related to something you know otherwise it just feels like greedy you know yeah. it's just like it gives off a bad vibe so yeah charge whatever you want for for your visas but like have some reasonable explanation i think um and obviously i think having a lower uh income requirement is going to open up the pool of applicants um because yeah i think it's just depending on how countries think about it you know if you want to attract like a younger more mobile demographic then like bring that price down if you really want to uh get people and you're you're really looking to attract people to like become permanent residents or even citizens you really want them to like move and commit and you're looking after going for like families or like entrepreneurs then okay like maybe that's a good reason to like bring it up so you know it's 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 about like strategy right it's like what is your policy goal and like make sure everything is aligned there because if you're just making up numbers and throwing it out there like like you can't bullshit a bullshitter. Like yeah. how many like people within this like industry, this space, like work as like marketers, like entrepreneurs, like we, we know the language of marketing and like pricing strategy, right? Like we're, we're going to look at these things and ask questions. Um, take a breath. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And yeah, then the a, other thing a savvy, was, it's a savvy yeah, customer base. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And yeah. we talk to each other. Mm-hmm. Right. Especially because information on the government websites are so incomplete. We like we check all the directories, all the blogs. We try to find friends. Right. Like because the information is not out there. So so we got we, we try to make sure we can get it um, on the other thing. So renewable. See, this is where I think it's really important to make the distinction. Like, is your visa program for digital nomads or is it for remote workers? Right. Because it's yeah. like. I don't think a digital nomad visa necessarily needs to be renewable. I agree. I, I should have. I, I misspoke when I said renewable, and I've, I've wanted to immediately like retrace my steps a little bit. What I mean is that I wish it would be. I would like for them to have a pathway to staying longer. So my in right. my ideal world, like um, it would that would mean converting to a different visa. But like for yeah. example, if Croatia provided one year, you come, they make this process super easy. They don't mm-hmm. require you to pay taxes. You apply, you can apply online or you can apply right there in the country. They just get you there. And then once you're there, yeah. if you decide, you know what, Croatia is actually where I want to settle down. Mm-hmm. That's a win for everybody involved. You got to convert to a different visa. You become a yes. taxpaying citizen, all this stuff. But yes, yes, that, yes. I, I like that. Not necessarily that you can renew it for five years as a nomad visa. I, I don't, I don't yeah. think that's important in the nomad world. Yeah. 
um, it's about having the appropriate channels for for the like for the right purpose, right? And I do think the the purpose of a digital nomad visa should just be, you know, it's like dating. You're getting to know each other. Yeah. Like if you're gonna like force somebody to like meet the parents and put a ring on it, like before they can <laughs> go on the first date, like are you really doing yourself like any favors? Um, yeah. I think uh, so. Colombia is has just launched, and I I hope I'm understanding this correctly. But I think this is new, and that's something I haven't seen yet. It's a multi-year visa, but it's capped at six months per year, hmm. which I think actually makes sense for a digital nomad visa. You know, because yeah. that's for the that's truly for the digital nomad. That's not for the remote worker who's looking to settle down long term. They're going to want a different solution that gets them like twelve months long term pathway to a permanent residency or citizenship, right? But for the digital nomad who wants to be mobile, it's like okay, like I applied like once for this visa, and like for multiple years, I can spend up to six months in this country. Like that to me is a smart move. Absolutely. Yeah, that's re that's really cool. I didn't know that aspect. Uh, and, mm -hmm. um, and we just had a conversation with Alana from uh, from Colombia, and I didn't get to that, oh, you that did. point, I guess. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So Maybe um, she'll come correct me. But if yeah, they're not she'll... already doing it, someone should. <laughs> yeah, that's a cool <laughs> idea. Um, it gives you like your your home away from home base. And, uh, mm -hmm. and then also you can keep keep traveling. I mean, that really caters to that demographic. Um, are there any other visas like in particular that have popped out to you as like mm -hmm. interesting? Um, I, yeah. I don't necessarily want to say just good or bad or whatever, like <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. go down that path if you want, but like interesting, unique, uh, you know, um, especially efficient, uh, or useful mm -hmm. or attractive. I'd, I'd just love to hear what you have to think. Yeah, Estonia is definitely one that I'm like highlighting. I've, I've picked a couple to do case studies on in the white paper. And Estonia is interesting to me because they don't have a restriction against uh, local work, which is across the board, like bog standard. Uh, the majority of digital nomad remote work visas say you cannot work locally, which makes sense, right? Because the idea is that this person is going to be like a net benefit to your economy, uh, but their money comes from abroad and they're not going to take local jobs. And so that's great and fine, but if what's what's your goal? What's your goal in attracting this young, talented, like highly mobile population to your country? And for Estonia, who have like a bang in tech sector, like punch above their weight in unicorns, really want to keep a good tech game going, like they I think they're smart and they're like, we don't we actually want people to participate in our economy. Like we want to give them an opportunity to, uh, to share knowledge, share opportunities. Like, cause you know, if you've worked in another culture, it's not like you can just show up on day one and get along perfectly. That's like, it's a process of like understanding how to serve customers in a different geography, understanding how to have colleagues who are of a different culture. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, and I think those things just occur so naturally when folks are actually working together and like, that's, what's going to fuel innovation. And so I, I think that's really smart, right? If, if your goal in attracting like, a, a like remote, uh, uh, like workers is to like boost your entrepreneurship startup innovation ecosystem, then you would be shooting yourself in the foot if you like prohibited people from taking local employment, right? Because like that's like what's ultimately going to lead to greater, let's say like conversion to whatever the next step is. That's a little bit more of a, like a long-term immigration pathway, a little more investment locally. Yeah. Estonia's nailed it on so many 
fronts and it's mm-hmm. paid so many dividends for them yeah. over the years. <laughs> They're like the the poster child in in a lot of ways. And uh, yeah, I think you said punch above their weight. That that rings so true. Mm-hmm. Any yeah. other ones that uh, that come to mind uh, in particular? Um, yeah, I think like an example of another completely different approach would be like uh, Georgia and Turkey. Mm. Both like don't have specific like visas for digital nomads, but have very permissive visa policies. Like you can just kind of show up. Um, Georgia was touted as having a digital nomad visa and it was, but it was, I guess, you know, it was just kind of a bit of a a branding exercise. There was like an official program that has like now since closed, but it wasn't really a new kind of visa. It was the same visa that like really anyone who was not even a remote worker could, could get access to. And that really put them on the map, right? Cause mm. they were one of the first folks to sort of see the opportunity and really uh, speak to it. Um, but Hey, here's an example that like of a country that's like pretty open with its borders. And I, I wonder if it's something because they're kind of like hemmed in by a lot of mountains and like they're not worried <laughs> about being overrun in the first place from a geopolitical standpoint that they that they will like artificially make their borders more porous uh, on, on the, the, the paperwork side. Um, but yeah, you can just say that like, hey, like why are you stressing about who comes in? Like as long as you're keeping track of everyone, like – maybe that's the more important thing. Like they definitely seem to have taken that approach. I mean, I, and they're in a, that, another place, as you mentioned, like they're, they're, uh, they're benefiting from this because they've become sort of that new up and coming place to go yeah. visit as a digital nomad. Um, I know a lot of people who are actually like moving there and settling down mm-hmm. there, uh, because yeah. you have an awesome quality of life and you, you amazing natural beauty of, of a city there in Tbilisi that's like, very um you know active and and forward thinking and yeah there's there's a lot to love and then like you say yeah you i think anybody can just show up almost anyone Mm -hmm. with like for a year and just like just be there even open a bank account i believe yeah (laughs) so so yeah i think there's again there's like what's what's your long-term objective there's many different ways of going about it and i absolutely think like countries have the right to make their own rules you know it's not like i think all digital nomads are entitled to this thing this thing but um but i do you know i am sort of curious if we can move forward you know i think there's a place for visas specifically for 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 nomads and remote workers um you know i sort of mentioned like passport privilege right like if we have the like these specific visas that are open for people of all nationalities to apply, then that's like, I think that's a really good thing because that goes towards sort of addressing like an imbalance um, that, that kind of exists and gives more people uh, mobility tools. Right. So like, that's one important uh, consideration, but I also kind of wonder why we're not normalizing remote working on tourist visas because it's Mm. still in a gray area. And like back in the day when like business travelers, like, you know, we're, we're, we're working, uh, they were a problem, right? But then that whole thing, sort of all these countries got together and were like, obviously this is a benefit. We want like international trade uh, relations. We want these business people to come and bring their opportunities, right? So let's just normalize the idea and we're not going to make them necessarily apply for specific visas. They can come in and do a limited amount of work on their tourist visas. Mm-hmm. And like rather than like rewriting your whole immigration policy, like I'm surprised that like I haven't 
I'm not aware of any country that has just been like, okay, so we got our immigration department and our labor department together and like, we're going to be cool. Like come in on a tourist visa. And as long as you stay less than 183 days, you're not going to become a tax resident. Uh, we won't like, and you don't take local jobs. We're not going to have a problem. Like don't cause problems for our labor department or our revenue department. Like just come in, work on your laptop. It's fine. Leave after six months. Like everyone's cool. Like, you could just say that. I'm really yeah. surprised that no one has said that. <laughs> I'll be honest. That I, that is totally been like with the whole digital nomad visa conversation. I'm like, what, when is that just going to happen? Like, <laughs> uh, and I mean, actually, coming back to Jan from um, from Croatia, you know, he he was saying like their biggest challenge when they were like, they had immigration on board to create this like mm -hmm. right away within like, and they passed this, their whole thing, as you know, in like record, like yeah, a month yeah, or yeah. something. It was super fast. Um, but they had immigration on board right away. But the problem was like the, the labor department, the tax department saying, no, 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 we want to make mm -hmm. sure we get some revenue out of this. Yeah. And, uh, and the imbalance there, like the, the inability to come to terms is, is such a interesting thing. And it, it, it is like, if you see that it's a net positive for the country, you'd think like someone would yeah. just like slam the hammer and be like, everybody shut up. This is what we're doing. <laughs> <Just don't laughs> yeah. It is, it is just kind of a matter because the way that governments work is that a lot of them can kind of just be like, everyone has their own fiefdom and their own agenda, you yeah. know? So like you like, so it's not always like something that's like cooperative. Unfortunately, governments don't actually function like as a, as a block, <laughs> yeah. um, which is a, which is really the, at the end of the day, the challenge, but that's something I'm trying to like highlight in like, the white paper and and this is kind of challenging like to sort of verbalize because it's how do you sort of make that clear that like okay it's your right it's your prerogative to come up with all of your rules but going back again to that friction thing would you rather have be capturing a little bit of tax revenue of at least from like vat and sales tax right mm -hmm. that anyone who's just spending you don't have to think about it you don't have to change your system wouldn't you rather just have more of that that's like so easy for you to capture like no effort rather than like this much tax revenue from income tax from remote workers who are not used to dealing with your country's like bureaucracy and you're not used to dealing with them either like that's like why are we like missing this because we're so worried that people are going to get away with not paying this yeah and sorry like, for the people who are just listening on audio i'm obviously like moving my hands very dramatically <laughs> they can envision it i'm sure i mean that, yeah it's like let's let's have a you could have a small piece of a much bigger pie if you just yeah. uh if you just let the pie exist so um, yeah but I think, you know, that's me. I'm like a naive optimist. You know, I've never been in government. Politics is complicated. And yeah. not everyone just wants to be friends like Lily would have that be. <laughs> do, you, do you see uh, you see this space evolving much? Like, do you see any, any major shifts coming, like based on the research you've done? Or, or are we on a, on a steady path now with, with this whole nomad visa thing? No, I think uh, I think we're we're starting to see some of the success stories, right? Like um, uh, within sort of you know our, our crowd that we like to play with on LinkedIn, right? I was so excited when like uh, Mita Karaman, um, who helped make the um, Barbados like visa happen, she like did a lot of community building and helped interface with the government there. When she shared like some of the results from their program, 
that was awesome because these programs are new. No one really knew what they were doing. So they put out version one based on their best guess. Some people had access to uh, leaders within the nomadic community to help advise them. Some people just gave it their best shot. And we're going to see like version two, version three. I do. I am optimistic that these things are going to improve and that's one of the purposes of the white paper is to try to like helpfully establish some benchmarks. You know, I've been talking a lot of shit, but like, I really <laughs> do think that these folks have a really difficult job. Um, and, and I'm really like, I think it's awesome that countries are looking at this opportunity and we just want to make sure that ends up being a win-win, right? Because if people have bad policy and it's not getting them the results that they want, we want the information to be available to them to do a better job. We don't want them to feel discouraged. They're like, ah, this is a waste of time. Yeah, totally. <laughs> um, that's, uh, that's all a lot of really good food for thought. And, um, and we'll, we're going to place the link to the white paper in the, uh, in the show notes so people can go in and, and learn yeah. more. Um, the, the white paper is not published yet, but I public. do okay. have the database. Anyone can look at the database and like review that information for now. And then sorry, yeah, that's what I meant. info for a while, but yeah. <laughs> uh, so yeah, yeah, sorry. That's what I meant. The, the database, the, the, what is public will, we'll make sure mm-hmm. there's links to in the show notes and, um, and you have an ETA on the public white paper or? Oh, well, <laughs> you know, uh, ChatGPT be has been helping me write it, but it's still ongoing. Um, yeah, yeah I, I've taken a little bit of a pause because I, I was working on it. So I launched this, uh, I launched this mastermind um, early in the year or last year rather to have some accountability to help me sort of really actually write this thing that I've been talking about writing for a very long time. Um, and we just wrapped up and, you know, I got all the way to the end of my own mastermind without completing my goal. Uh, so I'm just <laughs> taking a little bit of a breather because the whole thing kind of just took on a life of its own. And I just really wanted to do a good job. Um, and so I sort of broadened the scope from where I originally was doing it, but it's, it's mid March now as we're recording this, I like, I, I want the whole thing to, to be wrapped up by the end of April. I would like, cool. like something published to be out in the world by May. That would be very nice. <laughs> awesome. Well, uh, that'll be, that'll be right around the time this, this goes, uh, Ooh, live for everyone. So, um, so who knows, maybe, maybe we missed by a couple weeks, but we'll, we'll see. We'll, uh, everybody will, be, be on the edge of their seat wondering what is in the show notes. So, um, this is, uh, this has been great. I've, I learned a ton and I'm sure others did as well. Did, did we miss anything before we wrap up and give you a chance to, to link to anything else? Yeah. Um, anything I guess else I just want to, want to share on? a little bit and like, maybe this is even a question to you. So yeah. I, I mentioned this mastermind to you. Um, so between the mastermind, uh, the, the group that we got together was everyone was working on a project related to global mobility or like remote work, like lifestyle, not the work part, because like running remote have that on lock, right? They're awesome. They've got the community, they like level everyone up. But I feel like that there's a need for that for like within the lifestyle space and within like the like uh, yeah, it's just sort of like the larger, like the second, third order effects, like kind of space, you know? And I'm just a crazy person who wrote this white paper because I don't know, I'm just, you know, uh, a a little neurodivergent and I get obsessive about things and and this is fun for me. Um, But not a lot of people are motivated to try to tackle 
these problems. Um, the good folks at Plumia are taking their own approach, and I think that's like awesome. I really can't wait to see what they what they do. But I don't know, like, how do we represent like the movement as a collective on the things that are not just like specifically work related? I've been toying around with the idea of like this cooperative organization called like the Remote Commons. That's kind of mm -hmm. the umbrella under which I want to publish the white paper. Um, and I like this idea of maybe launching uh, like petitions for a couple different like countries and like folks can sort of spin up their own like petition based off of stuff that like I've done before so that no one has to start from scratch, right? Like let's leverage what's already out there and then maybe we can build kind of a network. And if we can do something in terms of like advocacy for digital nomad visas, can we maybe do the same when it comes to this like accommodation issue where like in many countries, right, there's issues with legislation around like Airbnb and like medium term accommodation is like mm -hmm. also difficult, right? People have like tourism or long-term, they are missing the middle. Like I, I'm kind of, yeah, just curious, like I'm coming on to your podcast to ask you a question, like how do you think we, what do you think is the appropriate structure or like organizational framework for us to, to tackle these issues? Just because I don't think any single government's going to do it. And even the best intentioned private company, like the incentives just aren't going to like make sense for the big picture. What are your thoughts? Yeah, it's a really good question. Um, and I, I think the idea is like really to how do you like band people together uh, mm -hmm. who are all we're, we're not united by any uh, imaginary lines of a nation. Um, mm -hmm. So therefore, we don't really have like collective voting power or anything. Yeah. But but in this context, if you could under something like remote commons, um, unite people and and push people in a direction sort of like an association. I guess yeah. uh, you could collectively have an impact and and steer some policy direction and maybe like also like product and service uh, mm -hmm. direction, which which would obviously be powerful and serve our collective needs. So yeah, it's fascinating. I, honestly, you're you're way ahead of me. I mean, I don't have any uh, I don't have anything <laughs> genius to share here. I think it's a cool idea, <laughs> and uh, I would support someone like yourself who would who would uh, actually put the you know the the hammer to the nail and make it happen yeah yeah maybe that'll be my 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 next linkedin nerding out series let's <laughs> let's publish the white paper first get it done lily you gotta stop talking about it and then i'll sort of start uh, jamming with the community online to sort of get some ideas about how how to take things to the next level perhaps yeah i think i think there's a lot there i mean i've had people um reach out about like like some not the exact same idea but just like similar ideas all revolving around like, Hey, we're, um, we, we should have a, there should be a collective voice for people who are, who are living this way. Like if you are living in the U S you have your, your local and state government and you have your yeah. trade associations or your, the company that you, you know, the, you guys, you're a 10,000 person company in your city. Like you have some collective power there, but like when you're dispersed across the world, um, you don't. And, and so, yeah. yeah, I think there's something really, really interesting to explore for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Stay tuned. Okay. Next time well, when Lily Bruns time. comes on to the about a bod podcast, we'll see <laughs> what progress has been made. Round three. Uh, <laughs> I love it. Well, well, you're invited back anytime and, uh, thanks for 
all the work you're doing and uh, and you know probing these these topics and issues. It's it's fun to dive into it with you, and I'm Thanks, I'm always Chase. happy to nerd out with you on this stuff. Yeah, yeah, it gives me great joy to talk about these things. I hope I wasn't too complaining. It's a fun kind of complaining, <laughs> uh, but yeah, it's been great to chat with you again. Yeah, it's the best kind of complaining. Uh, that I thought it was fun. Um, thank you, uh, thank you again. Where should people follow along? Again, we'll put the database link in the in the show notes. But where else should people follow you? And we'll we'll place all this down yeah. there as well. Uh, follow me on LinkedIn. It's uh, yeah the platform where I'm most active and where I'm going to try to galvanize some action around remote commons. Cool. Okay, great. That link will be in the show notes, everyone. Um, thanks again, Lily. Safe travels you. wherever you guys uh, venture off to next and yeah. we'll speak again soon. Bye. Thanks for tuning in today from wherever you are in the world. Once again, I'm Chase, and this has been another episode of About Abroad. For those of you wondering how you can best support the show, I have made it super simple for you. Just go over to the show notes of the episode that you just finished listening to and click on one of the two following links. Aboutabroad.com slash newsletter to get our monthly newsletter. No spam, guaranteed. Or ratethispodcast.com slash aboutabroad, where you can quickly and easily leave a review for the show. It's not just important to me. It also helps more wanderers just like you find us. Finally, don't forget to subscribe on your podcast platform of choice. And we will see you again next week. Thanks again. Hasta luego, amigos.